Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you, part of the Agora Podcast Network. Today, we have an exciting interview for you, and we actually get to welcome back someone that we interviewed two and a half years ago now, back in December 2016, Michael Mazar, researcher and scholar at RAND. And if you don't remember, Michael Mazar is a senior political scientist at RAND. He's worked at the U.S. National War College. He's been a professor and an associate dean. He was the president of the Stimson Center, senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. Uh, he worked as a defense aide on Capitol Hill. His resume goes on and on. And last time when we chatted about with him, we chatted about ordering mechanisms, which are these norms and rules that that states around the world sort of engage in that establish some sort of international order out of their repeat actions. And we've linked that show along with uh, a bunch of other stuff about him, of course, in these show notes so you can get caught up. Actually, Mike's last show with us was one of our best performing shows, which means that all of our listeners from back then were big fans. So a lot of you will be excited to have him back. We're excited to have him back. You're going to learn a ton. When you're done, go read more and follow up about him because he's a super insightful dude. Today, we're going to be talking about you know what causes states to go to war, what causes states to enter conflict, and question some of the you know conventional thinking that Xander and I have about classical geopolitical realism. Ooh. So it's bound to be a brilliant episode. I'm so looking forward to it. So with that, dear listeners, we would like to welcome once again, Michael Mazar back to Reconsider. Mike, thanks so much for joining us again. We're really, we've been looking forward to this one. Great. I'm, I'm really delighted to be here and have another great conversation. So we, we decided to go after Mike again, in part because uh, he's come out with a new book that we're really excited about. And we've been reading a little bit of his material recently that has actually sort of like deeply challenged a lot of our own conventional thinking about geopolitics. As you know, like Xander and I are most familiar with the classical realist school of thought about foreign policy and how it works and why states get into conflict and why they make, you know, foreign policy decisions generally. And we, you know, we've always respected Michael's work and are like, wow, this is this is a really different take from what we're used to. So we wanted to give him an opportunity to elaborate on that in part because, you know, we know that our own bias towards classical realism means that you listeners get a bit of, you know, get a, a biased look, right, at, at how foreign policy works. 
So Michael's recent book called Leap of Faith, Hubris, Negligence, and America's Greatest Foreign Policy Tragedy looks at the, the decisions to go to war in Iraq and obviously you know, why that happened, how that happened, and why uh, it was like, you know, obviously an avoidable thing. And he's written some other articles that we've dug into about what's coming next, and uh, in particular about the rise of China, uh, the resurgence of Russia, and why the future may not play out in the same kind of great power conflict way that we're traditionally used to thinking about in history. So we've got a ton of questions for him. And in, and Xander, I will confess, has done more of the reading for this. So Xander, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of put your perspective on this. Sure. Well, let's let's start with the book, Mike. I, I think this is a, a topic that that really resonated with me because I am I kind of came of age politically when Iraq two was just getting going in two thousand three. I I mean, if I'm tipping the hat too much as to my generation here, I was in high school and you know it was it was kind of the the first time after nine eleven where the U.S. like reached out in the world in the war on terror to you know, sort of do something new that wasn't a direct response to Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And the claims of WMD turned out to be wrong. And for folks like me who watch international affairs now professionally, I look at the Middle East and see a power vacuum that was created as a result of the war, giving the opportunity for the rise of ISIS, giving the opportunity for Iran to expand further into the Middle East. And it just doesn't seem like much of this war was in U.S. interest. And that's part of what I think Eric was talking about when he said it challenged some of this classical realist thinking in terms of states pursuing their interests. So I, just to start off with, would you mind telling us a little bit about the book, how you ended up focusing on this topic and and how we ended up stumbling into this war? Uh, yeah, sure. So good questions, big questions. The The book is about the decision to go to war in Iraq in 2003. It's not the last chapter, next to last chapter, does a little bit of the aftermath, but it really doesn't try to duplicate what lots of books have done in terms of telling the story of the war itself or the, for the most part, the immediate aftermath of kind of the chaos of the initial U.S. occupation. But it's about the decision and how uh, the Bush administration made the choice, if you can call it a choice, to go to war. And and the reason, I mean, I, I'm sort of, sort of interested in it for two reasons. One is that I've been interested in judgment and decision-making for a while in the national security realm, how nations make the choices that they do on what basis. I mean, that's what realism and all theories of international relations are trying to get to, right, is to give a sense of kind of a generalizable sense of where these decisions come from. Uh, I'm much more of the school that you have to look at individual cases to get any kind of meaningful take. So it came out of that interest. And then it also came out of the fact that I was in 2002, 2003, working at the National War College in D.C., which is a school for senior military officers. And even as of August 2003, with the beginning of that school year, but uh, also the following year, we got people coming back from the war and also people coming in to the War College who had been working in the interagency as part of the decision process, telling these unbelievable stories. And that kind of prompted and an interest in how could this decision have come about in the way that it did. And another admission to our, our listeners here, I, I haven't finished the book yet. I've started it. And for folks who follow Geopolitical Futures, I will definitely write a full book review on it when I get through it all. But so far, it really seems like you have quite an array of access to different sorts of primary sources in the book, including people who were involved with the decision-making process that it seems like 
either you lifted from some of their own writings or even interviews. How much of, of the book is based on you know primary source material? Yeah, so quite a bit. I mean, I did over 100 interviews and in some cases, things that were less than formal interviews at the request of the individual sort of informal discussions, but with people who had been working in the government during the period of the decision. And some of the interviews touched on the aftermath, folks who'd been part of Jay Garner's group or eventually the Coalition Provisional Authority and all that. But so there was three main sources of information for the book. One is basic published stuff. And in particular, a lot of the memoirs that have come out now, um, Condoleezza Rice's memoir is, I think, actually pretty revealing. And when you put them all together, they have a good amount of detail. Um, Doug Fife's memoir was unintentionally revealing, especially in some of the documents that they declassified for it. Then a second set of information is U.S. government documents. And this is still a limited set, but there are, well, U.S. and U.K. documents. So the United Kingdom went through a whole process of looking at their decision to go to war. And in the process, they declassified thousands of their own documents, and many of which referred to conversations that their officials had with U.S. officials. So that was a good source of information. And then on the U.S. side, there were several hundred documents uh, that are pretty significant that are now declassified. And then the third source was these interviews. So I tried to put all that together and kind of let the different sources of information speak to one another to, to, to tell, you know, as you know, the, the most challenging thing in that kind of a process is to decide on what you think the right story is. Because even when you get all that information, there's a lot of different ways of interpreting it. And so the overall narrative, the, the narrative story and the essential message that you derive out of all that information is still a very subjective judgment. One of the parts of the story that I'm really interested in is the one about yellow cake. So I was also in high school when this happened. And, you know, I was, of course, thinking, oh, my gosh, the guys, you know, Saddam is is building these nuclear weapons and probably real bad and not necessarily sure how I feel about the war. But that's this is clearly a threat that has to be dealt with in some way. And uh, it turns out, as far as I could tell, no yellow cake, no weapons. Did the yellow cake that was the yellow cake thing just terrible intelligence that we were sloppy about was it something like nefarious was it something more nefarious was someone up to you know up to no good as far as making things up i'm curious about that yeah so that's one of the big to that issue of like the big narrative or judgments you have to make is one of the big judgments or decisions i had to make was between kind of uh, two contending schools of thought about a lot of the architects of the war in the bush administration kind of the senior people in defense and the vice president's office who were really most intently pushing it, although against an open door, because nobody really opposed it. But were they actively misleading the American people? Did they set out to have a war and decide, you know, we don't really care what we say and we're willing to invent information and all that business? Or were did they actually believe what they were saying, uh, and did they actually believe a lot of the intelligence, and was the misinformation sort of accidental? And I, broadly speaking, I come closer to the second interpretation. So just to use yellow cake or things like Curveball, this uh, source that they supposedly had originally through German intelligence that was talking about biological weapons and other kinds of things, the issue of the aluminum tubes and all these famous examples of intelligence that was really touted at the time that in retrospect turned out to be wrong. And I think the number one thing that went wrong was that people who uh, were just certain 
that Saddam was moving in this direction of trying to get WMDs and people that were not really uh, that, that were so anxious to make this happen that they weren't really that intent about distinguishing good intelligence from bad. They were grabbing for everything they saw. They right. weren't making it up. There were intelligence reports that that Iraq was allegedly seeking yellow cake as the basis of a possible uranium program to build nuclear weapons. But, they, you know, they were just grabbing for everything. And this is the problem that comes up when when Colin Powell is going to go give his U.N. speech. You know, he and his staff arrive to find like a 48 page draft full of all kinds of just, you know, Joe Blow, our source on the ground in wherever, says this, therefore it must be true. So what they had to do was go out to the CIA and sit there for a couple of days going through these things and literally like, you know, this has come out publicly, but folks who were involved would tell me they'd look these things up on the CIA computers and discover, okay, well, that's a random raw intelligence piece of information that we don't really know whether it's true. We can't say with high confidence it's actually true. So they stripped a lot out. They didn't strip enough out. But anyway, that was the fundamental problem is they didn't go into it saying we only want to use material that's absolutely definitive. They would pick any kind of information that they could get their hands on, which ultimately, you know, yes, I find that to be negligent. I think that is illegitimate. But I do think it's a couple steps away from knowing that the intelligence is wrong and still using it with the American people, because I think most of these folks really believed that it was true. Yeah, it sounds like classic. I mean, classic motivated reasoning, which is a term yeah. I learned recently, where yeah. when you when you've already when you're already pretty certain of something or very much want something to be true, you're going to do a great job finding evidence for it. And that's you know, exactly happens right. to to us in the American public all the time. And, uh, right. And, and, and that's actually a concept that I, I use explicitly in the book and refer to some of the um, research on it. I think it's a critically I mean, it's sort of related to wishful thinking. Right. But it's a little right. different. And there's some some great quotes from like classic philosophers on this. Like I think Schopenhauer has a quote that's like, you know, when when you've got a when you've got a plan or a project, you are eagle eyed for everything that supports it. And you're kind of you know, paid little attention to things that don't. That's, that's a paraphrase. But that, that basic idea, and the, the problem is that, you know, it's a human thing. As you say, we all do it, right? So it's not like a Republican thing or a Democratic thing or the Bush administration or, you know, the Soviets did this when they went into Afghanistan. We did this when we went into Afghanistan. The Kennedy administration at Architects of the Bay of Pigs invasion did that. You know what I mean? It's just a common phenomenon. So that's one of the other lessons that I kind of one of the other themes that I kind of building on in this book, which is that Iraq is much less the result of one specific set of bad people who tried to mislead the public and much more a very typical and classic example of the kind of mistake generated by motivated reasoning that we see over and over again. I, I think that's um, it, that's one of the things that really makes this book interesting so far is it's not relying on some of the perhaps somewhat oversimplified explanations for how we stumbled into, into the war. And, you know, a lot of these are partisan explanations and I won't, you know, tip my hand if I have an opinion on any of these. But, you know, some things that floated around were Dick Cheney was evil and Bush, you know, just was his lackey or, you know, they purposefully lied to go get the oil and stuff like that. And, you know. The the challenge with those, even if you think they're true, 
is they they imply that the solution is simply replacing the leader when in fact what you're yes. saying in the book is the the challenges that U, US foreign policy faces are so much more complicated than that because the the mindset the philosophy that underpins those actions are actually built deeper into sort of the american psyche right right exactly the combination of the american psyche with our sense of like you know our our missionary attitude about our role in the world and then individual cognitive habits like motivated reasoning. So, yeah, I mean, the other challenge is that a lot of so, so part of you see other um, administrations making other kinds of mistakes that can't be chalked up to that particular set of people. The, the Obama administration made a lot of the same mistakes in their intervention in Libya and then their later policy in Syria. But in particular, the Libya thing. You can see a lot of those same hallmarks, which led to much lower scale, but similar ultimate mistakes in terms of the aftermath and what would happen and all the rest. So, yeah, it's I think it's much which makes it much tougher. And it's also tough because, I, you know, as, as I'm arguing in the book, which is kind of a larger theme, I think that generally for the United States to have a, a, a strong sense of its role in the world is a good thing. So it's not a matter of just throwing that away and saying, let's become isolationist and we can solve this problem. It's like, how do you strike a balance and avoid the worst mistakes while still preserving the capacity to do good in the world and sometimes to take risk? You know, that's kind of what statecraft is all about. But to me, Iraq and other examples like that can be mined for really useful lessons. And if future officials have read a bunch of books about a bunch of these different cases, you know, they can have things in their mind that hopefully keep them from making some of the same mistakes again. Yeah, I think one of my growing pet peeves is this idea that isolation versus intervention is somehow the choice that we have, as if somehow exactly. the U.S. could be could re can revert to 1790 and be yeah. isolated from, you know, we have what like 170 military bases around the world and. And anyways, that that has just always struck me as sort of a false option that's been presented to folks. And another thing that I, I find interesting about the book so far, and just this discussion, you're talking about motivated reasoning, reasoning, and some of these like decision making problems that often are sort of discussed in the realm of psychology, like Kahneman with thinking fast and slow. And but you also talk about you call it messianic thinking, I think, right? The U.S. is messianic thinking about about its 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 uh, role and obligations in the world. So it seems like you're trying to unite some of these higher level concepts in international relations that sort of exist at the at the level of structural issues, like we talked about last time with ordering mechanisms, with some of this really low level ind individual, more recent research in like cognition, and that's. That's that has that's one aspect of the book that I'm really excited to kind of dig more into. Yeah, and it's it, the result is that as you can see, I'm not doing anything close to what anybody would call international relations theory because it's much more of kind of a case study that is informed by a combination of some theoretical perspectives, well, theoretical perspectives from different disciplines, just like you say. It's sort of like there's a lot of IR theory that I draw on and a lot of the debate about U.S. world role. And then there's a lot of the decision-making literature that I rely on. And to me, again, to get back to sort of the universal versus the particular, I, I feel like theory is much less helpful in giving us a comprehensive and generic roadmap of how the world works and much more useful in saying, 
this is how it can work in certain circumstances. And then when you go into particular cases, you can draw on that to say, well, in this case, you know, there's a lot of this going on or that going on, or a lot of the officials had realism in their mind, or I can see where social construction was at work. So that's what I'm trying to do is, is do kind of like a, a, an informed case study rather than support one or another theory. Though I, I'm going to I'm going to ask you to possibly do a little bit of foreign policy theory here because or international relations theory thinking here, because it sounds like, you know, from kind of from my perspective, it sounds like the errors of the Bush administration, the Obama administration with Libya and Syria um, and just general how we think about the Arab Spring and the, uh, you know, the Bay of Pigs invasion, stuff like that. It all sounds very much like a certain form of liberal foreign policy that involves some form of, you know, hey, spreading democracy is good. It will lead to peace. We should be part of that. And I wonder to what extent does, you know, messianic city upon a hill thinking influence a, you know, a seemingly repeated decision to try to force or to try to accelerate the transition to democracy by everyone. Cause it seemed that, you know, for example, in Iraq, the mission morphed kind of quietly from find and destroy the weapons of mass destruction to create a democrat stable democratic state in Iraq. And it seems, you know, like our involvement in the Arab spring was similar that we had a fair, you know, it wasn't particularly stable after Iraq, but there were some stable states there that we said, well, well, these are these are bad and we actually want to help replace them through support, either military or non-military. So what to what extent do you think that like liberal foreign policy thinking slash messiah complex is a consistent thread in that? And does that you know, is is that something that is fundamentally bad? for the United States or by the United States? And if so, like, can it be cured? I know that's like eight questions. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, so I guess I would say, I mean, you're, you're raising great issues and absolutely. So the, part of the reason why Iraq is supported by a lot of quote unquote liberals at the time is that it reflects the, the democratic aspects of it. And also, to some, I mean, one important thing to keep in mind about Iraq and, and this U.S. impulse generally is that a messianic attitude is not only about supporting liberal values. It's also about believing that we are in a position where the United States can dictate outcomes around the world on a lot of issues. So the nonproliferation aspects and counterterrorist aspects of the Iraq mission are also this idea of, you know, we're going to kind of shape the world as we see fit. So that's part of it, too. But the reason there's as much support as there is, and even you end up getting the Washington Post editorializing in favor of the war, the New Yorker, you know, a whole bunch of liberal bastions is because, of course, as you're implying, by the early 2000s, you had this marriage of kind of what was the neocon vision for elaborate use of U.S. power, which had a much harder kind of power oriented tinge, but still very much a liberal value uh, expansion part as well. The combination of that with the liberal intervention notions that had been around since the 1990s that eventually morph into responsibility to protect and all the, the the liberal argumentation behind the Balkans and Somalia and Rwanda and all of that. So all that has become, you know, this combined, quote unquote, liberal interventionist viewpoint that is behind a lot of what's going on. And there's aspects of it behind even things like NATO enlargement as well. So what's going on now, I think, you know, is 
from a it, there's there's obviously two different levels here. So at the theoretical level, we can talk about that if you want of what you know kind of liberal theories or realist theories or whatever would say about all this. From a practical kind of policy and ideological standpoint, I think most people now agree that the extent to which that liberal interventionism had gone has to be ratcheted back. But just like we were talking about a few minutes ago, the idea that the United States should help promote democracy is not a bad one. The idea that democracy, liberal, open market oriented democracies tend to be value sharing and that's a safer world for the United States, that's a perfectly reasonable insight. To me, the real question these days is about, is not about ends, it's not about fundamental interests, it's about means and ways. It's about how do you go about doing this, even if you agree that it's a good thing to do. And so if we're going to say, all right, well, we're not going to intervene and force it on people, then the question is, okay, well, if I want something that is still a reasonable agenda for liberal value promotion, that is not what it would have been in the late 90s, early 2000s, what does it look like now? And what does it look like in a world where that agenda also has to take account of the fact that China and Russia believe that we are trying to undermine their regimes. And just recently, you saw some of this reporting, right, that some Chinese sources have now started to describe what's going on in Hong Kong as a color revolution. And that is a, a, a trigger phrase for Russia and China, right, which is the American value promotion engine is targeted to the destruction of their regimes, which I think is an exaggeration, but that's what they believe. So how do we have liberal value promotion that doesn't run afoul either of the old, you know, go take over a country and rule it for 10 years, or also doesn't run afoul of the new competition we're getting into and kind of making those competitions run out of control because they think we're trying to subvert their democracy and have them try to subvert our democracy, not their democracy, their regime, I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah. and have them try to subvert our democracy in response like Russia's done, right? So all of that points in the direction, I'm sorry, it's a long answer, but like to just a reformed and redesigned liberal value promotion agenda that I don't think anybody has a sense of what it looks like yet. Well, it, it was a long answer, but I think it was a perfect segue into the next thing that we want to chat about, which is uh, an article that you wrote for Foreign Affairs magazine in May called This is Not a Great Power Competition. And if you think about sort of the international environment after, after the end of the, world, uh, of the Cold War, arguably this, this black and white spreading democracy thinking worked pretty well. It helped us beat the Soviets and you know this, this interventionist mindset in terms of having an obligation to step in when necessary kind of worked in the Persian Gulf to the extent that we had limited objectives that were achieved. And I know some people think that that was unfinished business, but you know, it was, it, some people think it worked. And then some people think the intervention in Kosovo worked. And that was sort of the mindset going into Iraq too. But now if you read the national, national security strategy that came out, I think it was last year, the US identifies great power competition as the primary threat to the U.S. really for the first time since getting that whole war on terror thing going. So while for the last 20 years, we've really had in our minds this idea of, 
you know, terrorists with bombs sort of threatening our day-to-day lives, which was much different than what it was like in the Cold War. Now we're having to deal with sort of what some people think are a resurgent China or a resurgent Russia. And I, I don't necessarily agree with that, but your piece challenges that. And the the byline to it is why the term great power competition doesn't capture today's reality. So why doesn't that term capture today's reality? Um, so I think because it refers to an era that is not coming back, if it's to mean anything. I mean, if, if, if there are powers in the world and they sometimes have disagreements, then it's, it's abstract at a level that doesn't help us at all. But to me... When people think about that, and a lot of people that use that phrase are saying, kind of as you're suggesting, world politics is returning to rivalries among great powers like it was in the 18th and 19th centuries. And that's just not true, I don't think. I mean, it's not true, first of all, because the structure of world politics is not the same as it was then. You do not have seven, eight, nine great powers facing off against one another. You have primarily a bilateral rivalry between the U.S. and China going on with some troublemakers like Russia and Iran on the sides. But then primarily, if the United States doesn't kind of undermine this, we have a predominant piece of world politics that is still value-sharing democracies, many of whom are formal U.S. allies. And you just don't have this kind of like multilateral to, you know, Austria is my ally today and tomorrow they're going to be my enemy. There's four or five different countries that might invade me kind of a concept structure as you did then. Secondly, it's not primarily a political military thing. Classic great power competition was, you know, there's always an economic basis for it. But the tools of statecraft, ultimately, the way these competitions were resolved is primarily military in in form. And that is not the case today, even in our rivalries with Russia and China. And, you know, there's a number of other reasons that I kind of lay out in the article uh, about the, the, the way the structure of the system, the tools that are used. I just think thinking about that, thinking about it in that way, the main error, I think, or the main danger is that it, it, it distracts us from what should really be our focus, which is sustaining the predominant coalition of countries that do not want China and Russia to get away with the worst of their uh, abuses of international rules and that give us, as I put suggest in the article, a competitive advantage that no great power has ever had in a rivalry like this, which is most of the world wants you to succeed. They want to hedge, but they fundamentally do not mm. agree with the values or the goals of your competitor. That is an advantage that Boy, if we screw that up, we have thrown overboard the biggest possible advantage in this competition. So for all those reasons, I think that frame of a great power competition is more misleading than it is helpful. I think one of the, you know, one of the initial places that we would that our conventional thinking looks at this differently is that, you know, right now the world order is aligned to lined around the United States because of its relative power because of its own relative power. So it can act like a sort of magnet. It can act like a bandwagoning, uh, you know, center of gravity. And if we think of Pax Romana, Pax Britannica, they were, you know, they had in their, you know, in their time, a form of world order that worked fairly well for them. And there were, there were a lot of ankle biters and this worked out great until there was a power that just happened to be big enough to really challenge them. And, you know, with Britain, 
it was a little bit easier for that power to challenge them. Rome, you know, due to due to various factors from the Eurasian steppe to its own internal issues ended up falling apart. And then great power competition or local power competition resumed in Europe at scale. And so I think the, you know, if a if a if a hardcore realist came in to this article, I think their first argument would be, well, look, what you're describing, this this group of countries that are aligned with the United States, what you're describing is something that is a product of a U.S. preponderance of power. Only as long as there is a preponderance of U.S. power. And if we enter a truly bilateral or multipolar world, there's going to be a realignment where there's going to be ganging up or bandwagoning around another pole. And I think I think they might make the case that, yeah, China is surging to some regard, but they are at best a regional power at the moment. And there is even some bandwagoning going on to align towards China within that region, but that China is just so far from the U.S. in terms of power to make it truly a multipolar thing yet. But when they get there, we're going to like there's not much the U.S. can do to keep that from happening just by just by kind of tending its allies through through diplomacy and and regular statecraft that this is going to boil down to the security spiral. This is a narrative I imagined not being a PhD in foreign policy. And so I wonder if if that, you know, if there's anything about that that is interesting to you that you'd want to respond to. Well, yeah, there's a certain degree to which it's true. There's no question that, you know, the the basic idea that as China's power grows, it's 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 going to change preferences to some degree. But I think to me, to get back to the theoretical piece, the 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 biggest the, the kind of revolution or the, the 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 overall trend in international relations thinking over the last, I don't know, 50 years or so to me reflects a reality of the post-war and then now increasingly 21st century world, which is that material power is critically important, but it is only part of the equation. And ideational and normative forms of power are just as, and in some circumstances, more important in ultimately shaping preferences and behavior. And I think part of that, I mean, there's a lot of literatures that coalesce on that point. I'm really a fan of the kind of different faces of power literature that goes in all eventually in some ways goes in some kind of wacky directions, but basically helps to educate us about the fact that the reason we have as much influence we do in South Korea, Australia is not strict is, is partly absolutely. It is partly because of our material power. It is also because Although, you know, and again, you can pull all kinds of different questions about democracy and hell, you know, younger people in the United States are starting to pull some very strange results on the the future of democracy. But an average South Korean citizen feels themselves more aligned with the United States because of the value connections. And that as long as and, and this is one of the things that, you know, to get to that power piece, to me, I think China faces a tremendous dilemma. Because the more that they begin to make use of their power, like if China's going around and saying, hey, look, we want some, you know, we, we, you depend on us so much for trade. And so this Chinese company, we really wish that you would give them this contract. Okay, fine. Everybody expects that. The United States has done that. 
that's 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 sort of throwing your weight around in a way that people are going to sign and say, OK, we get it. But to the extent that they start sinking Philippine and Malaysian vessels as part of the South China Sea dispute, right. to the extent that they crack down on Hong Kong, to the extent that just more reporting today, right, about what they're doing in Australia and New Zealand in terms of intimidating free speech in democracies, they've got this dilemma that the nature of their system is going to express its power in a certain way. And given the normative views and prevailing values of many of the countries in Asia now, I think they've got a real hard time in having a straight line to the kind of influence that their material power might suggest. So anyway, I, I just think that a lot of the, the debates in IR theory have been around I think settling in a new place on this spectrum of the relative significance of material and non-material forms of power. And a lot of the work in IR theory has kind of pulled that kind of understanding more into the middle of that spectrum. And if we understand that full spectrum of kinds of power, it makes me very skeptical that China's future is kind of a straight line to dominating the world. Now, having said that, you know, the the narrative you laid out, I think there's a lot of truth to it. And there's absolutely no question that a lot of the hedging we see going on today is because of a perception of a shift in material power. So that's that has a, a reality. But if the United States can compete with a comprehensive understanding of all kinds of power, I think we can do very well. And you, you say something similar in, in this foreign affairs article. You write that the United States would do far better to continue leading the group of nations that holds the predominant share of global economic and military power. It's bound together by a dense network of institutions that remains committed to certain norms, such as those against military aggression and economic predation, end quote. Uh, at the same, same time, as you just pointed out, w one of China's problems is the more powerful it gets, the more all of these Western Pacific countries are going to fear China's ability. And I think one thing that sort of remains a little bit of an outstanding, I mean, certainly for Japan right now, is th this notion of credibility and the US, U.S.'s security guarantee to those Western countries. Because always in the back of Japan or Taiwan or the Philippines' mind is going to be, if push comes to shove, is the U.S. actually going to go to war in my defense, right? And I think this, this, this raises the question of intent versus ability. Do you think the U.S. would actually step out in defense of these countries? What are its actual red lines? And, you know, at what point would a Japan or a Taiwan say, I don't really think the U.S. would have my back? Yeah, I, well, it's a good question. I think part of the problem in answering it right, as you sort of imply, is that it's very situation dependent. And, and it, it partly depends on particularly in a lot of these cases where the challenge for the United States is at the official level, we don't take a position on who's right in some of these territorial disputes, right? Even in the case of the Senkakus, we recognize Japanese administrative control. We have said that Chinese use of force to challenge Japanese administrative control is something that would fall under the U.S.-Japan security agreement. But even there, we don't formally recognize Japan's claim. So that, you know, like in some of these circumstances, you can imagine a situation arising where it's kind of like a tough choice. Broadly speaking, though, Here's the distinction I would make. Going forward, I think the huge challenge for the United States is the Taiwan challenge and everything else can be managed. Because I don't think, you know, in terms of like security uh, commitments, yes, there's, there's, a, there's a concern that there are some of these specific 
territorial disputes that could that could flare up and are Japan and the United States going to fight an all-out war for control of the Senkakus? I don't know. But broadly speaking, I can't find any China hands who believe that China has an interest in invading and conquering any of these countries. You know, the issues are these specific disputes. And I don't think, I mean, you can get into these things by miscalculation, but neither China nor Japan nor the United States, but to begin with, even China has no interest in allowing these things to escalate into full-scale war. So I think that China's interests, its its objectives, its ambitions, you know, what the U.S. is promising to defend against, I think that's all manageable. And I think the United States can, as it has been doing, reaffirm a lot of security, existing security um, pledges. And then in a lot of cases, these countries don't want more. You know, Malaysia has no interest in the United States saying, yeah, we've we've come to a new agreement with Malaysia on instant U.S. military support in the in the event of any clashes with China because they don't want to provoke China with that kind of an agreement. The outlier is Taiwan. It's becoming worse because, as you saw with the most recent Chinese uh, defense policy statement, they are now unequivocal in saying they will not rule out the use of force. They are getting closer and closer. And I guess some China scholars would probably say they've already said this. But they pretty much taken the position that this is going to be resolved by 2049, by the 100th anniversary of the PRC. And it's still a long way away. But with every passing year, it gets harder and harder to resolve it short of force. Taiwan has more and more of an incentive to, to consciously pull itself further away. It is by far the most demanding military contingency of any of them. and. My own personal view, just Mike's view, is that the United States should never imply that it is okay with China resolving it through the use of force, and it should absolutely threaten to punish China for the use of force in, in invading this democracy. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. But are vital U.S. interests at stake that would justify an all-out war with China over Taiwan? I'm not sure that's the case. So to me, really your question, the most significant aspect of your question boils down to Taiwan. Is the U.S. promise credible? If it's not, do we get into a situation where China considers the use of force and then we end up getting dragged into a war that if we'd had to decide in advance, we wouldn't have decided to fight in that way? On the other hand, Taiwan is a thriving democracy and in no way should the United States simply say, yeah, you know, if China invades, oh, well, that's too bad. That's not a position we should take. So managing that issue to me is head and shoulders above the complexity of any of the others. If it were for Taiwan, I'd actually be pretty optimistic about our ability to manage the military disputes and our credibility in most of these other cases. I ask you a question that's related to the geopolitics of the situation. And some something about this thing called the Pacific Ocean clearly plays a big role <laughs> in U.S.-Chinese relations. It's pretty big. You know, I never really realized how big until I myself owned a globe and I could spin it and have the, the Pacific Ocean basically cover almost half the planet. I think it actually covers about a third yeah. of the Earth's surface, but it's huge and it's far away. And one of the sort of narratives that emerged, I think it was last year, maybe it was two years ago, was that idea, this idea of a Thucydides trap. And it was um, the professor of, I think at Harvard or Princeton, yeah, Graham, Graham Allison. Allison. Yeah. yeah, Harvard. Harvard. Got it. Okay. And his whole idea was, you know, just as Thucydides described the the cause of the Peloponnesian War being fundamentally uh, about the rise of Athens and that power transition, so are we facing a similar trap where China's rise is going to challenge the existing order and lead to some sort of conflict as other major power transitions have in the past. Now, Eric actually wrote his master's thesis at MIT about power transition wars. And I keep coming back to this because one of the correlations that you find in, in the data, and he, he used this big database from uh, the correlates of war and yeah. ran a bunch of different types of analysis on it, was that power transition is related to war. The rate of the transition is related to war, but so is the 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 proximity of the two countries, how close they right. are and the, border, the, the length of border they share, which I mean, seems obvious when you think about it, but it's, it's worth mentioning because the US and China don't share a border. And clearly, Pacific wars are possible. I mean, we had we fought Japan in World War II, but how do you think the geography of the Pacific Ocean plays into that Thucydides trap narrative? Yeah. So I think, so. and, and Eric, you'll have a, a lot, not, not to sort of go down into the rat hole of the debates over power transition theory and uh, databases and, you know, you've got folks who say the real number is zero and the real number is 16 out of 18 or whatever uh, Allison came up with. Luckily for um, you, this was 15 years ago and I've mostly forgotten it. So forgot <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Then, you know, maybe if I've read a couple articles recently, I'll remember as much as, as you. But so so it's really a contest. Uh, you know, I'm sure this is what you wrote about is really a contested theory to begin with about exactly under what circumstances and what kinds of power transitions lead to conflict. I will say that it's worth taking seriously the fact, I mean, you know, there is a certain kind of commonsensical uh, pattern that we've seen emerge over the last five years, which is, 
wow, as China's power has grown to the point where, and then, you know, when, when you plug in the U.S. invasion of Iraq and then the financial crisis, you know, all of my China expert friends tell me that a lot of attitudes began to accelerate in China of, of Chinese scholars and officials thinking, wow, this transition is actually happening faster than we had imagined. And, and Chinese behavior sort of going along with that and the level of conflict in the U.S.-China relationship, all that is, you know, kind of, again, at the commonsensical level, you sort of say, well, it seems like it's sort of, there is a dynamic here that's emerging, that Chinese power is leading to greater uh, clashes. But I think it's kind of like, to get back to your question earlier about the nature of the system, to me, it's more a matter, it's less a matter of like two generic powers having a transition as it is a a second dominant power emerging in the world, which conducts itself in many ways in opposition to a lot of prevailing rules. To me, that's fundamentally what's going on. Not not just a U.S.-China power transition, because you know one of the criticisms of transition theory is that it's you know kind of like as you were getting to, there's a lot of contextual stuff that's really important. And like we were talking about earlier, I think. China is rising in a world where, yeah, the U.S.-China relationship is is changing in a certain way. But if you plug in a lot of U.S. allies and others, it's not a power transition yet in the classical way. But to me, what's really going on is we are we have moved into a, a phase where China was no longer the underdeveloped, growing country that had left behind its quote-unquote red China revolutionary past but was still gradually uh, emerging into the world community to a point where, okay, China is now colossal and having influence on a lot of rules and norms. And guess what? It's not a colossal emerging Germany. It's a colossal emerging state capitalist autocratic country that is, you know, managing its economy in ways that don't align with what others want. So, that, to me, is the fundamental engine of the clash we're seeing today. Then the question becomes, for the United States, as the leader of the existing rule set, what's the strategy you use to try to tell China, okay, I don't care how big your power gets. Here are some rules you're going to abide by, and if you don't, then you're going to be gradually disengaged from the established world community. And do you really want that? I think the way we're going about that now is not the most effective. But to me, that's the fundamental dynamic. It has shades of power transition, right? But it's kind of a different basic process, I think. Right. Yeah. You're you're saying like this wouldn't be an interesting conversation if there if China was not quickly growing to the point that it's a it's geographical sphere in which it could challenge the United States and its allies militarily was not growing. Like that clearly makes this interesting and, and makes it an important conversation and sows the seeds for conflict. However, there are so many other, you're saying there's so many other contextual points around it, including uh, this more, you know, somewhat liberalish foreign policy notion of its norms are very different. It's, its norms are already very different and its desired world order was already very different from what the United States wants and its allies want Whereas if Germany substantially grew in power, if it invested a lot in its military, if it, you know, if it suddenly doubled in GDP, we wouldn't be thinking, oh, God, we might go to war with Germany. You wouldn't be talking about a Thucydides trap with Germany. Right. Um, right. So which gets back to your question about the, the, the Pacific. 
So because of the nature of this challenge, I think geography is less significant. If it were strictly a classic power transition theory, then you'd say, yeah, then you wouldn't expect the same result, partly because of geography. But the things that Chinese growing power are having an influence on are global norms and rule sets. And therefore, the fact that they're on the other side of the ocean is still significant, still makes a difference. If they were right next door, people would be freaking out far worse than they already are. But, you know, because it's kind of a contest over a system, that means that the, the, the fact that they're on the other side of that massive piece of your globe is, is somewhat less significant than it would otherwise be. So I wanted to ask about your How Nations Go to War article. And uh, that was the last piece of the trifecta that I actually read that one. So, you know, okay. also I'm a little <laughs> more caught up on it. And, you know, it, I, think it's, I think it's part of what you do so well is in different ways paint such a consistent you know, obviously compelling, but also like kind of a consistent picture of the place of the U.S. and other, you know, and other nations in the international order. And so now that I've given you your compliment, here's my question. So uh, one of the quotes in there is, quote, as a starting point, the media could better fulfill its obligation to the nation and undertake rigorous investigative analyses of potential wars. The lack of more extensive coverage of a possible war with Iran beyond simple accounts of actions and reactions is simply astonishing. And this is something that, you know, we beat the war drum about all the time. And, you know, to the most part, who cares what Eric and Xander think? But I'm wondering if, you know, I think it is common in academic papers in particular to say, like, group should do blank. And I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if you have any thoughts beyond group should do blank about, changing the incentives to changing the incentives to that such that revealing greater detail and nuance is interesting to the public and thereby you know the demand will be met and i'm also wondering if you know you talk about iran in this case being undercovered in terms of detail but has it ever been the case that the united states or or any media has covered the decision to go to war with sufficient nuance and detail. I'm thinking back in like the Spanish-American War and Remember the Maine and all that stuff that we learned in high school where it seems like, wow, it seems the whole media just got on on board with, you know, beating the war drum, drum and becoming jingoistic on day zero here. Um, right. So two questions in one. One, has it ever been different? Two, uh, how would it change? So I don't know that it's been different in, I mean, because partly when we say has it ever been different, it's really the modern era we're talking about because the U.S. wasn't, messing around in, in lots of places, waging as many wars. So if we're mm-hmm. asking, you know, right up through Pearl Harbor, right? I mean, Roosevelt couldn't get the United States involved to fight tyranny to save his life until we actually got attacked. There's definitely jingoistic press around the Spanish-American War, but it's, you know, it, it just wasn't as much of an issue. And then I think we go through a long period where, you know, which runs through the Vietnam War, which is a period that you guys probably can't even relate to, which I only experienced a bit of, <laughs> which is sort of a much more a sense among the American people that questioning the the ideas and the claims of those in power is really not something that's that urgent of a requirement that we should basically trust the leaders to tell us, you know, and I mean, that's a simplification, but, you know, going back to the era when the press was much more 
aligned with and sort of played games with the senior leaders. And so it's really not until the 60s and with the lessons that Vietnam teaches that that I think as a country, we have we have two things at the same time. We have still a very interventionist foreign policy and a media, non-governmental organization, think tank, research, whatever environment that is woken up to the idea that these are things that we actually have to put a lot of critical attention on. So has it been different since then? You know, I, I think the pattern since then is actually not that different from what we've seen recently, which is a very a highly limited and imperfect public dialogue fueled by the media and others on prospective wars. You know, like I say, and like you're sort of quoting there a little bit, over the last year, there have been waxing and waning discussions about whether we're about to go to war with Iran. And I can't remember really, I mean, very occasionally you see these little pieces that come out and say, well, here's what a war might entail or something. But for the most part, it's just kind of straightforward reporting or even kind of mostly think tank analysis of what's going on, what are they talking about, why would they do it? But in terms of educating the, the public, and it, to me, it's part of this broader theme, which you know obviously is in the article you're talking about. And I don't know what you guys think about this. And, and I think, as you say, some of your work has been in a similar direction, but there's a whole bunch of reasons why I think we as a country have to come to a fundamentally different place in how we have a public dialogue about going to war in a major way. And I, I don't exactly know how we get there. I think you see hallmarks of this in political leaders on both sides of the spectrum, talking about it more, but we could easily have slipped and we could still easily slip into war with Iran and have people looking around afterwards saying, what the hell happened? And why are we in the middle of what now looks like a 10-year war when nobody told me this is what was going to happen? So, I, you know, I'm not exactly sure how we get from here to there. Mm. But, you know, I, I think to your point, where we're at is still pretty similar to where we've been basically since the middle to end of Vietnam. And it's glacially moving in a new direction. And I don't know if we're going to get there fast enough. Yeah, I, I think one thing that I find interesting about this article is how it connects to your book in terms of some of these high-level ideas, like the way that America perceives its role in the world and sort of how that's based in some really fundamental ideas and how we went to war in Iraq being, you know, at least one of the narratives was, well, someone's got to do something. And I feel like that's that's what you, you've heard a lot when it comes to Iran you know, you might ask what what might the consequences be? You know, we didn't think through the consequences of Iraq and we ended up bogged down in a war. Yeah, well, who, someone's got to do something. We can't let Iran get nuclear weapons. Right. And it's this stark black and white framing. And I feel like that flows in a way from this messianic thinking that you write about and how the U.S. has this unique role in the world, how it, it has to be the, the one that steps out when anything potentially bad in the world happens. So I guess I, I also kind of have a two-part question. One, and cards on the table here, I wrote an article about going to war with Iran, and I, I wrote that it wouldn't be in the U.S.'s interest. But how, how do you think that could play out? And separately, you know, is there something that, I don't know, clearly we're biased here because we are a form of new media, but that new media can do to provide more of a venue for discussing these things beyond yes or no? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, on the second question, I think definitely, because part of the, and you guys know this, that part of the weird, I think, 
contradiction or split personality of the American body politic is that on the one hand, they're really that we as Americans tend to be very uh, susceptible to black and white, you know, missionary narratives. On the other hand, we also tend to be really skeptical of the idea that we should be running around the world fighting all these wars. So it's the second impulse that I think needs to be developed more as a bit of an antidote for those moments when, whether it's after 9-11 or whether it's, you know, after some quote unquote new intelligence discovery about North Korea that means we have to do X, that the public can say, all right, hold on a minute, you know, before we do this again and quickly absorb the black and white story we're being given, let's interrogate this a little bit more. And I think, yeah, so new media can do that. It's essential that members of Congress are part of this. If you had a critical mass of members of Congress who were demanding that, uh, as has begun to happen, right? In the, over the last year, you've had some new votes about the use of force with Iran and other kinds of things. And these are often uh, bipartisan votes that you know, between media and members of Congress and then some some leading old media that are willing to say, you know, the New York Times to say, OK, we seem to be on the verge of something here. We're going to devote 50 percent of our print and online space over the next two weeks to nothing but an effort to educate the American people about what this war might look like. I mean, it seems crazy and they would probably say, uh, you know, we can't do that. But there's no more consequential act of state. So, and then on your first question, just briefly, the thing that worries me about w how conflicts with Iran or others might play out right now is that the United States spent a whole bunch of time after the end of the Cold War being able to have its way with second tier military powers in part by waging them in a certain way. You know, the first and second Gulf Wars or the, the first and second Iraq Wars are great examples where our potential target sits there, lets us build up, lets us conduct a devastating air campaign that reduces the cost of subsequent military operations. And the main lesson that everybody else took away from those circumstances is, I am not going to let the United States do it that way again. So for example, if we get into a situation with Iran, my fear is, as, as they began to signal, I think, over the last few months, that their approach would be not to sit back and kind of let us get away with a lot of stuff and hope that they can ride through it, but rather their approach would be to escalate in some very dramatic ways very quickly to show the United States that this is a high cost endeavor and to shock us out of doing what we're doing. And there are similar, although much more complex and sophisticated intentions on the part of Russia and China. So my great fear is that the next war we get into thinking it's going to look like 1991 or 2003 is actually going to look very different. You mentioned briefly Congress as, you know, needing to take a bigger role here. And my, my own feeling is I agree. In particular, constitutionally, it seems to be their, seems to be pretty explicitly their job to be the ones who are deciding whether we go to war. So you at least have 535 people arguing about it for a while before you can at least then get a majority of them to say, all right, let's rip it. And then, of course, you need the president to sign off on it as well. And one of the weird things about U.S. history is it seems to me that since I, Korea, I'm, I'm going to be wrong about this, but 
I forget when was the last time the U.S. actually declared war as Congress on another state. And I'm sure you'll be able to educate us on it. But since then, you know, there have been these kind of like very generalized laws that were passed for, you know, emergency situations such that the president could just boom, go. And so it, it, it eventually, and, and if we think about it, it's, this is possibly how, you know, Iraq went off the rails and, uh, or happened at all, stuff like that, where, where, what do you think is, you know, I, I'm sure we're, we're in a thousand years when we look back on the history of the United States, someone will have a very good analysis of how its nature changed as a superpower. But what do you think is the thing that's keeping Congress from asserting its, its constitutional power to decide fundamentally whether we are going to war? Oh, that's a good question. And I don't know, you know, I don't know that there's a single answer for all members. I think, you know, as of like, if we're talking about 2003 or today, it's a little bit different. I mean, there's no question that political considerations, or if you want to put it that way, political cowardice plays into part of it. Some of the democratic calculus in 2003 was very clearly that this is after 9-11, you've got a very popular U.S. president, you've got, you're going to be blamed if, if this doesn't happen, and then Saddam gives somebody a nuke. So you got to kind of go along, even if you don't think it's, it's the right idea. But, you know, the larger problem is, like we were talking about before, is I think we're still very much under the shadow of this liberal interventionist, messianic attitude kind of general uh, particularly in the national security community, but in the body politic more broadly. So when, when you know, the editor of The New Yorker is writing an article in 2003 saying, you know what, I really feel bad about this, but ultimately I have to endorse this war because we've got to get rid of this tyrant, you can kind of forgive members of Congress maybe for, you know, being caught up in that same general sense of America's role. But we've learned a lot of lessons now, and I think you know, overcoming political considerations, overcoming the idea that if you don't have unquestioned executive leadership in America's position, the world is going to collapse. I think that bringing the Article One branch of government back into this decision as the leading decision maker for whether the United States actually goes to war will make us stronger in the long run, not weaker. But there's all these bigger trends in terms of presidential power, America's global role, America's liberal interventionist attitudes that I think washed over Congress like everybody else. And we are now beginning to see the signs of a correction of that. And and so the interesting question to me is how far the correction goes. But anyway, I think those are, you know, some of the reasons why, look, if the whole rest of society, to some extent, obviously, you know, members of Congress, politicians always reflect political opinion as much as they lead it. So when the American people are happy to go along with a certain set of adventures in the world, you can't necessarily expect Congress to stand up against. I think all that That's is now right. changing. Yeah. And so, you know, but, but the question is, I, I, I think we still see a lot of reticence and a lot of residual, habitual respect for the idea that, well, we've come to a place now where the president just makes these decisions and the president can decide to go to war even really without a congressional declaration. That's just kind of where we are. I don't think that's where we need to be. But it's still a little ways down the road before I think you're going to have most of Congress be willing to take issue with that because it's now become kind of ingrained in U.S. thinking. Mike, this has been such an interesting conversation for me because I think that, well, this conversation and your work speaks to 
sort of this pivot point that I think we're maybe not at yet in the U.S., but approaching where the way Americans think about their role in the world and not just foreign policy professionals, but as you said, the body politic is is going to change or there will be greater costs to incur than America has had to face in the past. Or, And as I mentioned in the past, some of this black and white thinking has been successful at times. It's not like, you know, we did not use that to affect in the 20th century, but it seems like some sort of shift in the American psyche in terms of its role in the world is coming. And for our listeners, what I really like about Mike's writing is he's, he's a scholar, he's a PhD, works at RAND, but his writing is not academic. It's accessible and it's lucid. So I, I'd highly recommend checking out his book, Leap of Faith, Hubris, Negligence, and America's Greatest Foreign Policy Tragedy. And as usual, usual we'll have all of these links on the show notes at, at our page. The foreign Affairs article was called uh, Why This Is Not Great Power Competition. And the last one was from Rand's blog, and it was called How Nations Go to War. But before we wrap up, Mike, are there, is there another place where folks can follow your, your merging work if they wanted to? Yeah. So actually, just as of uh, a week ago, I finally joined Twitter. So sorry I'm to hear yeah, Exactly. Yeah. First message I got was, yeah, this place is a dumpster fire. So <laughs> no, it's been actually very reassuring so far. It's a great way to keep up on stuff. But anyway, I'm, I'm there at M. Mazar. And then, uh, yeah, at, at, at the Rand website, uh, they, you know, at my bio there, they post anything I write. So either of those places would be a good way to to keep up. And thank you for the nice words. And I just quickly think you're absolutely right. We're reaching an inflection point and it's going to be really important to have folks like yourself promoting a good dialogue so that we deal with that inflection point thoughtfully and not in a knee-jerk way, which is has occasionally happened in American history. Yeah, no kidding. Well, here's how wonderful Mike is as a guest. He's been letting us get away for well over a year now with calling him Muzar rather than Mazar. And, uh, you know, <laughs> luckily now, now, dear listeners, you know how to pronounce it as well as us. Mike. Well, when you, you have a name like mine, you, you uh, get used to the fact of just not worrying about it anymore in terms of how people spell it or say it. So I appreciate being on your show, whatever you call me. Great. Mike, this is just as much as last time. This is a real pleasure. My favorite shows are the ones where I get to learn something while doing them rather than just doing the research for them. I got to today. I know Xander did as well. And, uh, and I know our listeners will. So dear listeners, check out, the, check out the blog post, which will be, or the associate post, which will be live when you hear this. And thank you. Thank you again, Mike. Thank you, dear listeners. Mike, we'll talk to you next time when we, uh, you know, when we have some pressing questions that we need your help answering. All right, great. I would love to be back anytime. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.